Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Listeners, welcome back to Barry Motives. We're so happy that you decided to tune in with us today. And we want to wish everyone out there a happy Mother's Day. Yeah, Mother's Day is coming up on Sunday. We hope that you really celebrate yourself and any other women in your life. I have to ask you though, and maybe our listeners have an opinion too, but how do you like to spend your Mother's Day? Is it better to spend your Mother's Day getting a day off where you don't have to do any motherly responsibilities, or do you prefer to spend it with your kids and still doing those motherly responsibilities? I personally prefer to do it with my kids without motherly responsibilities. (laughs) (laughs) Can't I have both? Come on. (laughs) So meaning, especially when my kids were little, I wouldn't want to have to do bath time and, you know, clean up and all that kind of stuff. I would rather want to be pampered, but still spending it with my family. Yeah, I think sometimes it would be so great just to be away. Well, that's what I did for my birthday this year, as you (laughs) recall. (laughs) Spent a night by myself and it was fabulous. Highly recommend. 10 out of 10. Until the evening when Melissa made dinner for me and my family. Yeah. And it was delicious. Pampering is a good way to spend your birthday or Mother's Day. Absolutely. Any day is a good day to be pampered. We just don't do it often enough. No. But I'm assuming you're bringing us a Mother's Day case. I am. With Mother's Day around the corner, I thought I'd bring us a case of a dirtbag mother. Oh, no. Is this one going to break my heart? It might a little. We should put a disclaimer in that this one is going to talk about the death of two young children. Oh, man. Those are always the hardest to talk about. They are. This one was particularly hard to research. There's a lot of video that I went through for this case. And whenever there's video, I find it so much more difficult. It just brings those victims so much more to life when you're watching them play around on home movies. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, we've talked about some really horrible mothers on Buried Motives, and today will be no exception. I think these ones are so disturbing because it's just hard to imagine, especially as mothers or even just as a parent, to fathom someone wanting to hurt their child. That's right, because a mother is supposed to love and protect her children. But instead, Elaine Campione's protection became entangled with jealousy and madness. Oh, man. Today, I'm going to start off with the worst of it. On the 4th of October, 2006, at 6.15 in the morning, Elaine called the emergency services, and in a really quiet and calm voice, she told the dispatcher that, quote, my children are dead. (gasps) The dispatcher asks her what happened, and Elaine answers, quote, I don't know. I don't remember. Oh, no. I cannot imagine being that 911 operator and receiving a call like that. Oh, Yeah, I can't imagine. And then when the police arrived at the apartment, they were greeted at the door by Elaine. She's a pale, petite woman, and when police ask her if she has any children, she just replies, yes, they're dead in my bed. No way. Just so calm. Really calm. Was she having a psychotic break? Well, we're going to get into it, and I'm curious on what your opinion is of whether she had a psychotic break and she actually doesn't remember what happened, or she's using this as a ploy to cover up her heinous actions. Oh, boy. When police enter the home, it becomes very clear Elaine is the sole survivor of something horrendous and that she is also the murderer. 
Police are directed to the back bedroom where they find two little bodies under the covers of a neatly made bed. A three-year-old little girl wearing a lavender nightgown and a 19-month-old wearing her pastel green Tinkerbell pajamas. Both were wearing a necklace and earrings with their hair neatly combed. Beside them lay a big stuffed bunny and between them, wrapped around their hands that were clutched together, was a baby blue rosary. There were no signs of life in either of the children. Both of them were cold and clammy to the touch, and they had grayish-blue skin. Oh my goodness. How horrific. And with them being cold, that means they've been there for a while before Mm -hmm. she called 911. Mm -hmm. There was an odor in the room, and there was a fan set on high to keep down the odor. So a long time. At -hmm. least a day or two. Yeah. Around the apartment, police found handwritten notes. One of them would read... Quote, bury them with their favorite blanket and stuffed animals. Serena, Barney, yellow blanket. Sophia, Teddy, blanket, cat, and sheep. On their beds, clothes for the girls were neatly laid out, including dresses, white shoes, and a tiara, and a storybook. Another note would say, quote, bury me in my wedding dress. What? In the kitchen, scribbled notes were found on the table, directed at Elaine's ex-husband, stating, quote, Leo, Your family is monsters. Another stated, Serena remembers everything. Even when I told her it was just a bad dream, she remembered it all. I hate you. What happened? Further notes were found in Elaine's apartment directed at her husband's family. Quote, I want Diego and Anna to be charged with mental and emotional abuse and that any money is to be left to a women's shelter and rape crisis center and not to Leo Campioni. Another note read, quote, my husband told me if I tried to leave, this would happen, and it did. I prayed to God that he would help my family. Along with all the notes that Elaine had left around the apartment, stacks of court papers showed legal aid certificates and upcoming court dates for children's custody hearings, as well as several bottles of prescription pills. I'm so intrigued as to what's happening here. And that's what the police would feel walking into this scene. They have no idea what's going on. Well, and it seems like with the notes that she was planning on killing herself, but obviously hadn't either. Nope. So they were going through a messy divorce. Yes. And a horrific custody battle. Oh, that's always so sad. The police that attended the scene were shocked and horrified. They couldn't comprehend what had caused this mother to do what she did. Philistine goes against any of the laws of nature. Absolutely it does. That's what makes them so heartbreaking. It is so sad. You think about all the joy that we're going into, like celebrating Mother's Day, and it's just so hard to fathom a mother doing this to her children. What possible reason could she give in an attempt to justify her actions? Is she a disturbed woman suffering with her own demons? Or a manipulating, vengeful dirtbag that is cold-hearted to the core? Oh, yeah, that's a tough one. And this is all the questions that the police have coming out of this scene. That they've just experienced. Oh, yeah, because it could be either or both of those things. Right. So they start digging into Elaine's life. Frances Elaine Goodline, who went by her middle name Elaine, grew up in Gaspar, New Brunswick, Canada. She was the youngest of three girls, and her childhood was described by her mother Faye as, quote, normal enough. Elaine said that her parents were good people who had been vetted by the foster care system and were upstanding citizens. As a teenager, Elaine was in a significant car crash and did experience some head trauma, but the extent wasn't really explored beyond that it had happened in her youth. Okay. She didn't seem to have any lasting effects from it. 
Her mother said that while Elaine kept busy with her studies in high school, she was a little socially withdrawn and didn't have a large group of friends, preferring to be alone most of the time. She had feared her daughter was depressed as a teenager, so Elaine's personality went a little bit beyond just being an introvert. She was withdrawn. After high school, Elaine went to community college to train as a home support worker, completing one year training before she moved on to caring for children. In the jobs that she secured caring for children, she was reportedly well-liked by the families and affectionate towards the children. Which makes this even more bizarre that she could kill her own children when even by profession, she's nurturing. Yeah, it makes it so shocking that that was what she chose to do for a living. And then this is what she goes on to do to her own children. Yeah. Around the age of 20, Elaine decided that it was time to leave the safety of home and ventured to Ontario on her own to find work as a nanny. In 1999, at the age of 25, Elaine met Leonardo Campioni. After a whirlwind romance, the two moved in together a short time later. The couple were described by most people as mismatched. Leo was the outgoing type, who loved to socialize, and Elaine was a very quiet person. People that had met her said that she was the serious type and rarely smiled. Hmm. Yeah, that does seem quite opposite. But sometimes opposites attract. Mm Mm-hmm. But Elaine's mother did note from the very first time that the couple visited New Brunswick that their relationship seemed filled with tension. Faye Goodline believed that Leo was overly critical of her daughter and that her daughter, to combat this, was motivated to do everything to meet his approval. Faye would say that, quote, she had to cater to what he wanted to keep him happy. Oh, yeah, that's a red flag. Mm-hmm. There are several allegations that come out during this couple's relationship, and two very different sides of the story are told by Elaine and her family, and Leo and his family. And that's usually the case. Very rarely do the two sides of any argument agree on how things go down. Oh, yeah, usually the truth is somewhere in between. That's right. But these two different takes on what's happening in this couple's relationship can have a profound effect on what you believe Elaine's motives were for killing her children. Elaine's side viewed the relationship as controlling and verbally and physically abusive, driving Elaine to be insecure and constantly trying to make Leo happy to keep the peace. The constant stress of trying to keep Leo happy made her miserable and horribly self-conscious, always on edge and looking for the next attack or slight to her self-worth that she would then have to fend off. So she became very defensive. And if those things are true, you can see why. Absolutely. But Leo Sai would claim that Elaine's insecurities began long before the relationship and that he didn't make any demands on her, but instead was always having to deal with her needing constant reassurance that he wasn't going to leave her, that Elaine frequently became very jealous of other people and would accuse him of cheating. Elaine would become so obsessed with trying to maintain their relationship that she would put undue stress on herself to meet his needs and then blame him for it. Elaine would make up a scenario in her head and then find evidence of it despite the untruthfulness of what she was telling herself. Hmm, I can see that being the case as well. Mm -hmm. Either of those things could be true. You can see both sides of this story being plausible. Yeah. Despite the obvious signs of stress to outsiders looking in, the couple continued their relationship and were married in August of 2002. And they eventually added children into the mix. Why get married if you're having such turmoil in your relationship? It doesn't sound like either of them were happy and both were just resenting each other. Why move forward? It does seem like that was a relationship, but it was like this love-hate relationship. 
that mm. they work so hard to keep each other happy and they were so loving of the other one that it went to almost a controlling nature. Hmm. Yeah, it seemed a little unhealthy right from the start. Yeah, dysfunctional. And adding children into the mix is never a good thing to do when you already have some dysfunction going on. Yeah, but surprisingly, people sometimes feel that having a baby is going to fix all your problems. And it just highlights them, really. Yeah. The couple's first child was a girl, a little girl they named Serena Isabella. Sometimes in some home videos, Elaine would actually call her Serena. And then another time she would call her Serena. The interrogating officer calls her Serena, and then Elaine will follow suit and call her Serena as well. So just for continuity, I'm going to continue to call her Serena, but it may have been Serena. Okay, but even Elaine herself went back and forth between the two names. She did. So Serena was born on August 8th, 2003, shortly after the couple were married. And another little girl, Sophia, joined the family in March of 2005. Both girls had their mom's petite features and frame and were blonde-haired and blue-eyed. They look like little fairies in their pictures. Aww. What is sad, though, is that behind their smiles, there's this haunting look that can be seen in their eyes. Eyes that held too many secrets and fears for their young ages. Eyes that would be closed much too soon by a person that was supposed to love them the most. Aww. Mm -hmm. You can see that stress on little kids. Yeah. And that's what it looks like in most of their pictures. They're just wary. And even their home videos, it's pretty heartbreaking to watch. They're up and playing around, and yet they're kind of standoffish and wary of what's going to happen next. You can tell they're on edge, mm -hmm. which I'm assuming means abuse or witnessing abuse at least. I think it would indicate that or just being unsure of somebody's reaction to them. Yeah. The tragedy in this case was brought on by what should have been a loving family relationship, but was anything but. Elaine and Leo's marriage was a rocky one. Throughout it, Elaine leaned on her parents for support, and a lot of support. During her honeymoon, she called her parents and racked up over $200 in collect call charges. What? Just on her honeymoon, needing reassurance and advice from her mom. On her honeymoon? Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I would think I'd have other things to do on my honeymoon than call my mom and dad. Right? $200 collect, that's a lot. <laughs> You're doing it wrong, honey. <laughs> You're spending your time on the phone. <laughs> but it just speaks to Elaine's need for that constant reassurance yeah. that I'm doing this right. Mm -hmm. I'm just joking. It's just surprising, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's not a typical thing to happen. No, it's an unusual behavior. Mm -hmm. On later visits to her family's home after the marriage, Faye continued to see signs of controlling behavior from Leo. After the birth of Serena, Elaine and Leo made the 14-hour drive back to New Brunswick to show off their new addition. During the visit, Faye noticed even more disturbing behaviors. Elaine was very reserved in Leo's presence, and she noticed that her daughter seemed even more determined to do what her husband wanted, the way he wanted them. Faye viewed this behavior as being compelled by Leo's abusive nature. Leo would say that this behavior was the result of Elaine's paranoia that he was going to leave. Leo would state that Elaine was starting to make life very difficult for them with all of her accusations and that she had actually taken to following him to work to make sure that he wasn't sneaking off to have affairs. Oh, wow. And if she's always needing this constant reassurance, maybe she's doing that with Leo as well. And so he's coming off as controlling because she's trying to do it just like him. But it doesn't seem like she's able to make these basic life decisions on her own almost. 
Yeah. It seemed like she did have a very needy personality. She needed constant reassurance from people. So then maybe that progressed into more of a controlling relationship. It just became the norm. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say which came first. Right. Whatever was behind the withdrawal, Elaine was suffering. She constantly looked tired. She was losing weight. And her acne had flared up because of all the stress that she was experiencing. What was supposed to be a beautiful time bonding with her new baby was overtaken by her stress and she withdrew, becoming disengaged from her infant, according to her mom. So she wasn't bonding well with Serena. And it sounds like Leo's just getting frustrated rather than recognizing my wife is sick right now and needs some help. Mm -hmm. But it can be constantly draining having somebody that always needs reassurance and doesn't trust you. Absolutely. So I can see both sides of the story. Yeah. Elaine's stress and insecurity started to affect her other relationships as well, though. She started perceiving slights and threats from other people. And when she would perceive a threat, she would lash out first. This behavior is a common defensive mechanism when you feel threatened. In the flight, fight, or freeze response, Elaine's reaction was to fight. It's not a bad thing to have that reaction, but the trouble comes when you are perceiving everything around you as a threat. That's true. And that's a scary place to live. Elaine's supportive relationships now took on a threatening tone. While trying to help her daughter, Elaine took her mother's intentions the wrong way and cut off all ties with her parents for over a year in the spring of 2004. Oh my. Faye said that it was just a, quote, silly row, that Elaine had blew it out of perspective. For over a year, she didn't talk to her parents, except on Serena's first Easter, when she called them to berate them for the insult that they had sent Serena in the mail. They had only given the one-year-old a $5 bill in her Easter card. She was upset that she only got $5. Yeah. After not speaking to her parents for almost over a year, that was her first interaction. That was what prompted her to call her parents and end that year-long silence. Instead of, thanks for thinking of my daughter, it's about the gesture. It's not the amount of money that you're sending her. Mm -hmm. But she took it as a slight. Yeah. And when someone is in that kind of a state, It's nearly impossible to have a healthy relationship with them because anything they're doing, even a kind gesture to send their granddaughter a card, they're getting backlash for. Mm -hmm. However, Elaine would go on to claim, though, that this period of estrangement from her parents was brought on by Leo's controlling ways. Ooh, which is a common thread when it comes to abusive partners. They want to segregate you from your family and friends. Yeah. I had such a hard time deciding between which side of the story to believe with this case. I'm really curious to what you think of the father's guilt and the mother's guilt in this one. Oh, I'm intrigued. Elaine had said that Leo was monitoring her calls and was not allowing her to call her parents. And so that's why she wasn't calling them. But I do find it a little unusual that if that were the case, would you use your only contact that you could establish with them to yell at them over a $5 insult and then hang up on them? Yeah, that's just what I was going to say. If you finally had the courage to call them, wouldn't it be more like a cry for help or I love you, I miss you, that kind of thing? Not like, hey, cheapos, why don't you send more than five bucks? Yeah, I thought it a little strange. And it makes Leo's side of the story sound a little bit more believable. Yeah, she's doing these things to discredit herself, I have to say. Mm -hmm. A few months after the birth of Sophia, the family relationship became volatile. On June 2nd, 2005, Elaine takes her two girls and checks into a woman's shelter. Oh. According to intake documents from the shelter, Elaine claimed that Leo had been physically abusing her 
But the tipping point had come when he struck Serena while she was sitting in her high chair. What? When Elaine checked into the shelter, she had bruises on her head, arms, and legs that could be consistent with a beating. And did Serena have any marks? I couldn't find any reports of the injuries on Serena. Oh, that changes things. Mm-hmm. At the shelter, Elaine claimed that Leo had shoved her and told her that he was going to tell everyone that she was a crazy and unfit mother, that he was going to try and take her girls away from her. She said that the abuse had been going on for some time, that he had kicked her in the stomach while pregnant, and that he had beaten her bloody in front of the girls. She told the shelter workers that, quote, I have been sick to my stomach for two months now, but since I got to the shelter, I can eat now. And how old was Serena? Was she old enough to say, like, daddy hit me? Or was she still pretty little at this time? She was like two. Oh, so not old enough to be able to give an account. Yeah, she's not very old. Leo was arrested on the day of the altercation and was released on a $10,000 bail to return to court for the four counts of assault, one count of assault causing bodily harm, and one count of uttering threats for incidences between 2004 and 2005 involving his wife and his eldest daughter. So she pressed charges. Mm -hmm. These charges would later be stayed by the court, with the opportunity to reopen the case again if more evidence could be produced within one year, which it wasn't. Hmm. So they didn't move forward because there was no evidence. They couldn't find enough evidence, it sounds like, okay. to go forward with the case. But when she came into the woman's shelter, they couldn't derive her markings as being from a beating? I think there was the claim made by Leo that she had been the instigator. Oh, she had attacked him. Mm -hmm. He never denied that there was an altercation. Okay. And we have seen stayed charges again and again in family abuse cases. And it's so sad when mm -hmm. the abuser is let off time and time again because charges aren't pursued. Right. And people automatically want to assume that it is the husband, but sometimes it is the wife. Mm -hmm. So the lack of determination of Leo's guilt or innocence in the abuse allegations is a haunting aspect of this case because it raises so many questions about the motives. Yeah. But she did have marks when she went into the shelter. But just this one and only time. Mm -hmm. And he's saying she attacked him. From the court records, he had a plausible explanation for the marks. Okay. On June 13th, Elaine filed for divorce and called her mother for help. She and the girls returned to New Brunswick for three weeks, and Elaine petitioned for sole custody and for the right to stay in New Brunswick. During the stay, Faye noticed even more disturbing things about her daughter's behavior. Elaine engaged with the girls very little and spent most of her time on the phone speaking to people in Ontario about Leo. She spoke to his boss, a friend who had been a groomsman in their wedding, and she seemed more preoccupied with Leo than with taking care of the girls. Oh, she's just worried about turning him into a villain and making sure everybody knows mm -hmm. rather than just moving on with her girls. Yep. Not even just turning him into a villain, but she was tracking his whereabouts. A bit of an obsession, maybe? A little bit. When courts declined the latter part of Elaine's petition to stay in New Brunswick, saying that she had to return to Ontario, Elaine made plans to return back home. Originally, she was going to return to the couple's home, but she stated she was too fearful to do so, and she begged her mom to accompany her back to Ontario. Her mom, of course, agreed to mm -hmm. help out, because that's what moms are supposed to do, to care for their children, whether they're adults or not. Faye said that she was worried about Elaine and the girls, too. Yeah, you never stop being a mom. No. When they returned to Ontario, the four settled into a woman's shelter, because Elaine was too fearful to go back to the family home. 
At the shelter, Elaine had difficulty fitting in with other women. She thought herself above the other woman there. After a brief period of time, the four moved to the fourth floor of a subsidized apartment in Coulter Street Apartment Buildings in the north end of Barrie, Ontario, just behind the Bayfield Mall. The apartment was operated by the Barrie Municipal Nonprofit Housing Corporation, which provides geared-to-income or full-market-rate units. The divorce between Leo and Elaine was a relatively simple one. Besides the matrimonial home in Bradford and a very expensive engagement ring, the assets weren't really fought over. The children were another matter. And it's so sad when they fight over the children. And it seems like the children's interests were really lost in this custody battle. It sounds like it. And it's not your usual custody battle either, because one is saying there's all this abuse, and the other one is saying they're not stable enough. That's right. Because of the assault allegations, Leo isn't actually allowed to see his children. It would be over a year until July 2006 when he would be able to see them again. And at that time, he had to start supervised visits. During the custody battle, Leo attacks Elaine's mental health and parenting skills. He tells the court that he has concerns about his daughter's safety because of Elaine's mental health. And his concerns aren't unfounded because cracks in Elaine's psyche are beginning to show and others besides Leo are starting to pick up on it. Even her mom. Now that she's spending more time with her, she's noticing even more things. Well, and there's obvious validity to his statements because now we're here talking about her Mm -hmm. and what she actually did do. So he was warranted in his concerns. I'm not saying he wasn't abusive, but maybe both is true. I really think that this is a case of both. Faye described her daughter during this time as very disengaged from the children, too preoccupied with the custody battle and the threat that it presented, which I think is ironic given that her main fear is having her girls taken away from her. But the actual girls themselves play a very small role in her concern. It's almost like she's just using them as a weapon, which is a total dirtbag thing for anybody to do. Or it seems even more like their possession than anything else. Yeah. The need to possess them might have been an expression of her motherly love, but I think there are several things that Elaine does that point to the opposite of this. Elaine had first said that she didn't feel safe returning to her home because of the abuse. But as time went on, she began to believe that there was a conspiracy being formed against her to take her children away. She believes that her husband and his parents, Anna and Diego, were working with the mafia and becomes paranoid about her movements being tracked. The mafia. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a woman unhinged. There is obvious mental health concerns taking place here. And her downward spiral is documented. Very clearly. Yeah. So I think even, and I don't know, but this makes me believe that possibly some of the things she's accusing Leo of could have been exaggerated because everyone's a villain to her and she's a victim at everyone's hand. Absolutely. Elaine begins to experience very intense delusions of people following her and trying to take her girls away. She refuses to park near any black cars and starts to really control what her young girls are and aren't allowed to do. She stops her kids from touching anything red because it's symbolic of blood. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Her mom would later testify that she became alarmed with Elaine's erratic conduct and obsessive compulsive tics. Hmm. And remember her girls are at this time are two and a half and six months. Yeah, they're just babies. As people around her started to recognize that Elaine was struggling with her mental health, They started to seek outside sources of support, and Elaine views this as fulfilling her belief 
that people are trying to take her daughters away from her. It's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. She starts again to view her mom as the enemy. At one point, after Elaine sought treatment, her mom takes care of the kids, which seems like a logical solution. She had been staying with them since the shelter. She was a loving grandparent. She knows their routine, and the girls can stay in their own home. It makes sense that she would be the one to take care of them while Elaine couldn't. And they're comfortable with grandma. They know her. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, when Elaine was released, her mom's help with taking care of the kids was not viewed as help by Elaine. It became a part of her delusion, and she began to believe that her mom was conspiring with the children's aid to take her children away from her. And a rift took place again between Elaine and her mom, with Elaine no longer trusting her mom. Oh, no. So now this support that is in there is going to be forcefully kicked out. Mm -hmm. And that's such a sad thing with psychosis. It's so scary for the individual. But what makes it even more devastating is that it chips away at the support that the person has that would help them manage the mental illness. People that you would ordinarily rely on become your enemy because of the stories that your head is telling you. And what a terrible place mentally for Elaine to be living in. Mm -hmm. It would be so scary to think around every corner, somebody's trying to get you. Yeah, or your children. Mm -hmm. She's just living in this delusional state, it Mm -hmm. sounds like. Yeah. As she builds the stories in her head about people wanting to take her children away from her, they become more elaborate and even more scary to her. She goes through several lawyers for the custody battle because she comes to believe that her lawyers are secretly working for Leo. She even goes as far to drive to one of the lawyer's houses to spy on him. And in total, she would go through four lawyers during her custody battle because she thinks they're all conspiring against her. Hey, this is becoming more one-sided, I feel like. Mm Mm-hmm. In October 2005, Elaine's paranoia escalated. She showed up at Leo's parents' home and was ranting and raving about someone or something coming to take the girls away and that they needed to take them from her. She ran from room to room in their house, talking about aliens and how they were coming to get them. What? Leo's dad, Diego, would later testify that Serena and Sophia looked unkept and malnourished. So she went to Leo's parents, not even her own. Mm -hmm. Because at this time, she thinks that her mom is working against her. Right. But with the threat of aliens, that pushed her enough to go to Leo's parents. Mm Mm-hmm. The experience for Leo's parents was deeply alarming because Elaine barely made any sense as she spoke to them that day. Elaine was admitted to the Royal Victoria Psychiatric Ward for a seven-day observation. Finally. According to her intake forms, Elaine was admitted for treatment because she believed that she might harm herself or the children. Leo's parents kept her girls temporarily. But now Leo's parents become a part of the crowd that is trying to take her children away. Elaine has already started to villainize them in the whole custody battle, but this takes it to a whole new level. At some point, Elaine tells her sister that she will never let anyone have her girls. During this whole time, Leo had been kept from parenting his girls because of the abuse allegations. But his concerns about his daughters continue, and he continues to push the custody battle forward. So even though he can't see them, he's fighting throwing more stress onto the situation that was evolving rapidly for Elaine's mental health. During the year that he has not been legally allowed to visit his children, Leo had been undergoing all the programs that he was asked to attend by Elaine and by the courts. He is living with his parents in Woodbridge, about 30 minutes from the apartment where Elaine and the two girls live. Every Tuesday night, he attended meetings for managing his drinking and his anger. The meeting supervisor said Leo showed no signs of being an alcoholic, and that during counseling, he abstained from alcohol completely. 
to the counselor's knowledge, he wasn't drinking. Right. But he's obviously, if he's seen him regularly, it's not a drinking problem per se. Right. Leo's counseling sessions had focused primarily on managing his emotions, particularly his frustrations with the displays of Elaine's jealousy. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Doesn't justify, but makes sense. Yeah. Right. At least he's addressing the problem, admitting like, hey, I have a problem with anger when it comes to this. Right. In April, Elaine was hospitalized again, this time for what I believe was thought to be a suicide attempt. Sometimes the timelines of the documented hospitalizations, the child and family service documents, and Elaine's journal entries get a little confusing to follow and don't always match up perfectly. But I believe in April, Elaine was hospitalized for a suicide attempt. In a journal for her daughters, Elaine wrote, quote, The police put mummy in the hospital for 72 hours. You were in foster care. Mummy kept getting a headache, so she took eight to nine pills, called Daddy, and he called the ambulance. Mummy had to stay in the hospital for two weeks, and you stayed with Nano and Nano. Grandma and Grandpa. That's right. There are so many things to dig into about this journal entry. What kind of keepsake is that for a one and three-year-old? Even when they're adults, is that something that you would write about to your kids? Yeah. Is it to them, though, or is she just getting that out in her journal? This is a journal written for her daughters, like addressed to her daughters. Okay. It's not just her musings on paper. It's specifically for her daughters. The journal's good because it does provide insights into Elaine's thought processes. In one journal entry, she is very introspective about her relationship with Leo. And despite how she slams his character every time when she has an audience, her private musings are a little bit more telling. In one journal entry, she writes, quote, Daddy hit me. Daddy drank a lot, but he was in a lot of heart pain because I closed my heart from him. Because he used to give me lots of love, so much mummy couldn't handle it. It scared me. I felt like I knew that he was going to go away from me, so I tried to protect myself from the pain. Wow, that is very insightful. But she's not protecting her kids from the pain. Like normally, you want to keep that kind of stuff from your children, not write a book to them about it. Mm -hmm. But it is a very telling statement about her insecurities. And you can see how Elaine has a need to act first before anything can hurt her. Yeah, I'm sensing you're going to hurt me. I'm going to hurt you first. And that's like the first time it sounds like she's being honest that Leo really loved her and it was just too much for her to handle. So she had to cause those problems and lash out at him. Right. And this is in a journal entry with no audience, except her girls in the future. Yeah. I'm not saying that Leo didn't hurt her, but it's giving more insight here that he maybe didn't at least start out as a bad guy. Right. The other thing I found interesting, and it kind of speaks to your thoughts about Leo, is that they were separated at this time and in a bitter custody battle. At this time, she's telling everyone that she's terrified of Leo and his family. They're the first ones she calls for help. Yeah, and Leo's doing everything that not only the court has asked him to do, but also that Elaine has asked him to do. It doesn't sound like he's an alcoholic, but he's going to meetings for that and doing all these things, which to me shows genuine love and want to have his children in his life. Mm Mm-hmm. And commitment to getting them back, right? Yeah, he's not flying off the handle. Like, think of the rage. If your spouse was spitefully taking your children away from you and you couldn't see them for a whole year and you had not done anything wrong, 
you would be livid. Yeah. And so for him to contain all that and just, okay, I'm going to go through the process, trust in the process. If he was a dirtbag, you think there would have been outbursts, him trying to get the kids back. Right. And a lot of people think that it was because of his persistence in this custody battle. Like he didn't just give up and he, he didn't just accept that Elaine was going to have custody of the kids, that that's what kept pushing her mental health over the edge. But I think that there's genuine concern on his part for the safety of his children. Yeah. And she just wanted it to be all done. She wanted him to be a deadbeat dad, but he wasn't. He was a decent dad who loved his girls and he was fighting to get them back in his life Mm -hmm. from the limited information that we know so far. Right. And don't get me wrong. I do think it's wonderful that Elaine reached out for help, that she did drop the kids off at his parents' house, that... She did call him when she took the pills. Mm-hmm. It's good that she's reaching out and calling out for help from someone. I'm just surprised that with her narrative of how abusive he is, that he's the person that she chose to call. Yeah, you would not call the person you're most scared of in life. You'd go to a stranger before you would do that. Yeah, the narrative doesn't match up. It doesn't. At this time, Leo had just been granted supervised visits with the girls, although they hadn't quite started yet. He hadn't been able to officially see them prior to this because Elaine said she was afraid that he would hurt them. But here she is calling him back into their lives. And there would be several other instances where she tried to stay in contact with Leo and even tried to have a relationship with him again. And there are some that viewed this constant need to be in contact with him, even though she was calling him an abusive husband and this dirtbag dad. That this constant need to know where he was and to be in contact with him was obsessive. I'm just thinking, is it because she does love him and is it kind of like that safety net? Or is it when you are so terrified, you want to know exactly where they are so that you can feel safe knowing that they're not about to get you? Oh, that's a good point. I never thought of it that way. Most people would say, though, that they viewed this as her being obsessed with Leo. Okay. After this hospitalization, Elaine's possessiveness and need to control the girls increased. During one of the supervised visits, Leo took a picture of himself with his girls. And when Elaine found out, she was irate because she felt that even images of her children belonged only to her. (laughs) Once she had calmed down, she does agree to allow him to take some pictures of the girls, but only with strict guidelines that the girls can't have any pictures of him in her house. She's not thinking of the girls here. No. And she's forgetting this is their father. Yeah, they are going to have a relationship with him. Yeah, he has just as much right to them as she does. Mm -hmm. In her home, she kept any photos of Leo in a photo album in a closet and would only occasionally let Serena take it out and look at the photos of her father. The photo album was only ever allowed to be in the girls' playroom and never anywhere else in the house. The girls learned to follow this rule. In July 2006, Elaine once again shows up in Woodbridge at Leo's parents' home and tells them she is not coping and asks them to watch the kids while she checks herself into a hospital again. And I do think that this must have taken a lot of strength on her part to seek out help from people that her delusions were telling her to fear. At this point, I believe she is trying to look out for what is best for her children. There are many times in this case where I have wondered, why wasn't a more stable living arrangement found for these girls? 
I understand the importance of nurturing and protecting the child's parent relationship, but it seems so bizarre to me that this relationship is allowed to continue without supervision for so long. Mm-hmm. With one parent being accused of abuse and only having supervised visitation rights and the other parent in and out of psychiatric treatment, a stable environment seems to be the best option for these two little girls. Yeah. And Elaine herself is showing that Leo's parents are a stable environment because now this is twice she's gone to them for help. Yeah. And it makes me wonder if it was the girls' ages that made people a little bit more relaxed on not finding them another place to live. If they thought that, oh, they're just young, they won't really recognize what's going on. Yeah, as long as their physical needs are being met, then we don't have to worry, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. But that's just not the case. It's not. We know even going through these cases that so much happens developmentally by the age of three that will affect a person their whole entire life. Absolutely. Luckily, though, social services did become more involved during this hospitalization. And when doctors declared her mentally sound and no longer a risk to the children in July, they provided support for Elaine in the community. A Children's Aid Society worker visits the home and observes Elaine's interactions with the girls. Elaine began attending an outpatient day program in the community and attending counseling. The improvement in Elaine is noted by several people over the summer. Elaine takes more of an activist role against family violence, and that summer she and the girls took part in a charity walk for domestic violence awareness called Take Back the Night. A neighbor actually writes a letter to the Children's Aid Society to commend them on the work that they are doing with Elaine because they have noticed such a dramatic improvement in her behavior and interaction with Serena and Sophia. Wow. That says a lot if a neighbor is prompted to write that. Yeah, because they notice the social worker going in and out. They notice the programs. And Elaine's now taking the children to the park all the time. They're noticing the children are better cared for. They look clean. They're happier. Can they touch the color red yet? Never says they could. (laughs) But things seem to be sorting themselves out. Yeah, she is getting the help that she needs. Mm -hmm. Is she medicated at this time? Yeah, at this time, she is medicated. Okay. So this then does go to that theory of it was her mental health issues. Mm -hmm. That were causing the relationship problems. Yeah. And her disengagement from her children. A parent's mental health has a huge effect on the relationship that they can have with their children. Right. And this definitely did seem to be the case with Elaine and her girls, and definitely with Elaine and Leo. But even though things are sorting themselves out with Elaine's mental health, she does remain nervous about the custody battle. While she's been improving her care with the children, she has also been kept up to date on the reports of Leo's interactions with the children and their supervised visits. And he too has been getting glowing reports. A report from the September 22nd supervised visit with Leo and his children reads, quote, Serena saw Mr. Campioni walking from the waiting room into the visitation area, and she ran towards him with arms out, saying, Daddy, Daddy. Mr. Campioni picked up Serena, hugged her tightly, and said, I missed you so much. You're getting so big. Mr. Campioni wiped tears from his eyes. Mr. Campioni put Serena down, looked at her, and said, So beautiful. Then asked his daughter, is mommy taking good care of you, sweetie? He wiped away tears again. He looked at his daughter, Sophia, sleeping in the stroller. The staff reported that, quote, he was a loving father, that it was clear that children really loved him back. So he was being supervised at this time, 
but the doting act and emotions that he displayed at the visit were taken to be genuine from the staff trained to observe them. Yeah, he's not sounding like this bad guy. And it's just so frustrating that sometimes this can happen to men where they're just made out to be this villain. And if he retaliated in a more exuberant way, then it would have been seen as bad. So it sounds like he's being really smart about it. He's staying calm. He's doing what he needs to. And it sounds like he really loves his children and he is fighting for them. And it's just so sad that he's getting, I feel like, wrongfully accused of some of these things. Even if he flew off the handle once or who knows what happened on that day that she did first go into the women's shelter, it sounds like he's making positive steps into wanting to be in his children's lives. Right. Leo never did deny an altercation took place. He said that it happened, but he repeatedly said that he never abused his wife or his children. But there's always this part of me that thinks that's what a lot of abusers claim. Right. But I don't feel like his actions are showing all these red flags of abuser. Right. Because like you said, those social workers are trained to look for that kind of thing. And they said he was genuine. They did observe him to be genuine. So I'm on the fence with Leo. I don't know who to believe in this case. I can see it from both sides. If Leo had been abusing his wife and his children, then he is an utter dirtbag and shame on him for the role that he played. Mm hmm. But I think it's worth pointing out that neighbors and family friends reported him to be a hardworking, soft-spoken construction worker that loved his kids and his wife. But then again, Elaine's neighbors would report that she was a doting mother, and we know what she did. Right. And how many times do we cover a killer who the neighbors are like, oh, he was the nicest guy. Like, you never know what's happening behind closed doors. But I would be more leery of Leo if Elaine was of sound mind. She's not been of sound mind when making these accusations. And that's clear by how much better she's doing with the treatment. It is true. It just seems so bad that we have to take her mental health into account when we gauge the truthfulness of her accusations. Right. But we have to remember she's also claiming aliens are coming to take her kids from her. Exactly. So we never would want to discount if someone is being abused. Never, ever, ever, ever. And so we're not saying that Leo didn't. But at the same time, there's reasonable doubt, I think. There is reasonable doubt. And I feel like it's easy for us to think, okay, yeah, he probably did. Unfortunately, because that does happen often in a relationship, Mm -hmm. right? Women are mostly abused by their significant others. Sadly, that is true. Mm hmm. So it's a no-win right now. No. In the last week of September, Leo visited his lawyer and started proceedings to apply for increased access to the kids and to get the children their own lawyer. He cites Elaine's, quote, mental health breakdown and, quote, deplorable conditions in which the girls were said to be living in as reasons why he's doing this. He also requested Elaine's medical records be released as evidence of his claims. A custody hearing is scheduled for October 5th. But they're doing better now in her care. They are. When Elaine meets with her lawyer on October 2nd, she learns all about these steps that Leo is taking. And it's also pointed out that Leo is moving on with his life. He has a new woman that he's seeing and that he has started the proceedings to sell their Bradford home. Her lawyer is honest with Elaine and tells her that he thinks that Leo might actually end up with custody of the children. Oh, no. This is going to push her over the edge. Mm-hmm. Ugh. It's so sad that you can see it so clearly in retrospect. Because she's going to think, oh, I have to save them from him. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. On the way home, Elaine complains to her friend 
that had driven her to the appointment that she feels that Leo and his family are using her mental illness against her to get custody of the girls. Remember, at this point, she is undergoing therapy and treatment pretty successfully, and she's clearly understanding what they're doing, and they are using her mental illness as a justification to get custody. And it feels like, why are you doing this now and not before when it was an issue? Like, she's doing good now. Right. Why can't we share? Why can't we have shared custody? But they were so far beyond that. When they say custody battle, this really was a battle. And it seems like in this battle, both had kind of lost perspective of what was best for the actual children. Yeah, to see both their parents. Mm -hmm. That afternoon, Elaine goes to her superintendent to get a letter about the conditions of her apartment to disprove Leo's allegations. And then she starts visiting friends and neighbors in the complex. She tells one that she has two sets of sheets and a girl's coat to give away. She said that Serena would never grow big enough to fit the coat and that the girls would never be out of their toddler beds. What? What would you say to someone? She's never going to grow big enough to get into that coat? Well, it seems that the message was kind of missed on these neighbors and friends. They thought that she was just preparing to run. Okay. Which would seem like a more logical thing to do. Don't kill your kids. Run with them if you had to. If you really believed that your ex-husband was abusive. And that you needed to save them from him. Right. I can understand fleeing. Like, yes, that's kidnapping. But I can understand that more than I can understand ending their life. How is that in their best interest? Yeah, it doesn't seem plausible to the logical mind. And she's making these decisions while she's medicated now. While she's doing good. Yes. Oh. And that's my deciding factor on how I felt about this case. There's no denying that Elaine has multiple mental health issues. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe that it was the mental health issues that were making this decision for her at this time. It was if I can't have them, no one can. I think so. Oh my gosh. She left a message with a support worker at the Barry's Woman's Shelter. Unfortunately, that message was never received until the next day. The message stated that she felt, quote, railroaded by the legal system and that it had failed her and the children. And it's not even that it had failed her. The lawyer just said there's a chance. So she's not even waiting to find out if he's going to get custody or not. No, she's striking first. There's a threat. She's striking first. Right. One week after receiving a certificate from a parenting course, I believe Elaine made the conscious decision to kill Serena and Sophia. She did, obviously, because she was giving away their things. Mm -hmm. What takes place next is some of the most heartbreaking home videography I have ever seen. Oh, no. That evening, Elaine takes video of Serena and Sophia in their home, running around, singing and dancing as their mother interacts with them. What seems like an innocent home movie has very sinister undertones. Elaine uses the images of her children playing in the bathtub and watching TV as a backdrop for her rantings about Leo's interference in their lives and to prove to him that their girls are happy and that the apartment is clean and that she is a good mother. She repeatedly asks the girls to show with their arms how much she loves them. Her language becomes more aggressive as she talks about the abuse that she and the girls have suffered at his hands and hopes that Leo and his family burn in hell. She tells the camera that now she, quote, wants justice for my family for what they have done to us. As she is videotaping, Elaine puts little Sophia in the bath and is encouraging the little girl to sing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star for the camera and showing off her swimming skills. According to Elaine, Sophia had been learning to float on her back in swimming lessons. 
When Sophia lay back, she gets water in her left ear, and the toddler becomes distressed, afraid of water being around her head. According to Elaine, she needed to take her out of the bath and calm her down. If Sophia ever came out of the water, no one knows. That's when the camera stopped, at 8.39 p.m. It contains the last images of three-year-old Serena and 19-month-old Sophia alive. Elaine would later claim that the next moment she remembers was calling the police almost two days later. But she remembered to shut off the video. If she really was in a psychotic break, she wouldn't have shut off the video. Yeah, I think there's lots of things that point to her guilt and her awareness of the situation. During her interrogation, Elaine reveals memories of that day. And this is another case where the interrogating officer did an awesome job putting Elaine at ease to get her to talk. Despite meeting with a lawyer and being told not to answer any questions, Elaine goes on to answer many of the officer's questions. She even repeatedly tells the officer that she's supposed to say no, but then keeps talking. The officer does a great job of redirecting the questions anytime Elaine feels threatened or starts to say she doesn't remember something. He focuses on a tiny little detail to get her talking again. And the next thing you know, she's talking about what she said she just couldn't talk about or what she said she just couldn't remember. Wow, there really is an art to interrogation. It is believed that Elaine had Sophia turn on her stomach and practice blowing bubbles in the water, just like swimming lessons. When this trusting little angel followed her mother's request, Elaine held her daughter's head under the water against the ringed tub floor mat until she stopped struggling. Oh, Melissa. Then she took her limp little body from the bath and laid her on the bathroom floor, covered her with a towel, and said that she believed that she was just really tired after her bath, so she was very quiet afterwards. And is Serena in the tub when this is happening? No. They weren't bathing together. They weren't. Originally, she says, I don't remember anything. But as people start to ask her specific questions, she does actually remember. So it's not like she blacked it out. She uses I don't remember to avoid the guilt and the interrogation. Huh. Which is kind of a level of cunningness. Mm -hmm. As Sophia laid on the mat, Elaine moved on to her three-year-old Serena, who was in the living room at the time. During a psychiatrist assessment later, Elaine said that Serena had to be chased through the apartment because she, quote, did not want to take a bath. Oh, no. Yeah. And I hope that this is just one of those rebellious ways of a three-year-old. And it really wasn't Serena sensing something sinister and running for her life. Yeah. What if she heard what was happening? Because even little Sophia would have been putting up a struggle. Mm hmm. Could you imagine the fear? I just... I have to think about it the other way because the thought of her last moments being filled with terror running from her own mother are just too heartbreaking. Yeah, let's hope that that's not what it was. Because how horrific. It's your mommy. Mm -hmm. And you're running for your life. Even if she doesn't understand what's happened to Sophia, she knows it's bad. Yeah. Elaine caught Serena and put her into the bathtub, presumably playing the same bubble blowing game, and pushed her head under the water against the bath mat. Elaine then dressed her girls in their favorite pajamas and jewelry and placed them in her bed surrounded by their stuffies. Each of the girls' hair was brushed and arranged to hide the bruising from the floor mat of the tub. And to do it twice even. Could you imagine? She drowned one girl and then she spent time chasing the other one to do the exact same thing. Yeah. Not at any point thinking, what did I do? I can't do this. The video recording turns back on at 9.27. Elaine is sitting on the couch, facing the camera directly, all by herself. 
This video is all about Leo and how he has caused everything. Because of his action, she is ultimately left with absolutely no choice. That if he hadn't had treated her so badly, if he hadn't pursued access to her children, if he had just backed off, then her kids would still be alive. Instead, she's just entrusted them to God because she couldn't entrust them to him. She says that she's scared. She's scared of his family. And she says that at least the girls and I will be together. She says that she was a great mom and that she claimed she had no other option, that she had been forced to do what she did because Leo refused to tell the truth. Elaine looks into the camera and says, quote, There, are you happy? <gasps> Everything's gone. God's taking care of them now. There is no way I could have them with you. The camera cuts out. I'm almost speechless. There, are you happy now? It seems like she just used them as a way to get revenge and to hurt him. It's so true. It sounds so vengeful. Her rant was all about, you can't have them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she's saying, oh, I had no choice. There's lots of other choices. Yeah. So many other choices. Run away like your neighbors thought you were going to do. Yeah. Right? She tells Leo in this video message, quote, now you deal with it. You deal with it for the rest of your life. I hate you. I truly, truly hate you. You can take your engagement ring and you can shove it where the sun don't shine because it's cursed. I am not mentally ill. I don't care what people say. Nobody would listen. And now people are probably saying, they're saying, how could she have done this? Well, there must have been a mental, a mental illness for her to do what she did to her children. There wasn't. I want you to go to jail for a very long time. I want you to know you have destroyed this family. From the several times that she referred to herself in past tense, it's believed that Elaine took an overdose of her anti-anxiety meds that she had been prescribed during her last hospital stay. Elaine did intend to die. She took the medication and climbed into bed with her girls. Later, she would tell the interrogating officer that when she climbed into bed, she had noticed that the girls were cold and grayish looking and that she had thought it was odd that they didn't curl around her like they normally do. Oh, that is so eerie, Melissa. On October 3rd, the camera turns back on again at 8.19 a.m. and a very subdued and dazed Elaine sits on the couch again. This time, Elaine monologues to the camera. She tells to the camera, It's morning and our babies are in heaven. I hope this is what you wanted. You've wiped out your entire family because you couldn't have your way. I hate you. No, honey, you did. You wiped out your whole family because you couldn't have your own way. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes me livid. How dare you, ma'am? It's almost like she's projecting her own guilt on to Leo and saying everything that she's guilty of that now he's guilty of. Yeah, she should have been looking in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Elaine talked about wanting to take my babies to a safe haven and about God being the only one to protect her and the girls, saying they're protected by God. Thank God. At 6.15 the next morning, October 4th, Elaine placed the call to the police. After spending another full day with her dead children in the house, with only a fan blowing on the bodies to keep the smell down. Even what would that do to you, to be in the house with them for that period of time? Mm -hmm. Honestly, I have a burning in my belly listening to this. It seems like such a selfish rant. Well, that's what's making it so much worse. It's already so horrific. But then you're going to make videos like that and try to act all high and mighty and blame this on him? 
The kids hadn't even been living with him for how long? They were not being currently abused by him. But she feared that he would get custody of them again. And so she believed that this was her way of protecting them. Well, and she's even referring to them as my children, not our children. She's viewing them as possessions, her little objects. Mm -hmm. There's only one time that she refers to them as our children. All the rest of the time, they're hers. They're hers. They're hers. Her whole world just revolves around her. Mental illness or not, she's even saying in there that she's not mentally ill. But she obviously is. But that is not an excuse. She was of sound mind. She was being treated when this happened. She chose to be the worst kind of dirtbag ever. And I think it's very clear from her statements that this murder was more about revenge. Yeah. When she calls out and says, there, are you happy? I hope that's what you wanted. Yeah, that's being catty. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? And then you're trying to like rub salt into the wound that you know you just slashed into your ex-husband's heart. I think for her, it is all about possession. (laughs) It's been a while since I've been this riled during a case. It's just so sad. Those poor little innocent babies. Police arrested Elaine and after having her checked out at the hospital, proceeded to question her. Now, did they say she had taken a bunch of drugs? Obviously not enough to kill herself. Yeah, they believe that she did take drugs. Just from her video from the next morning, she does look very dazed and kind of out of it and subdued like she has been drugged. So it is believed that she did try to end her life because that's why she referred to herself in past tense during her second video. Right. But when she woke up, she didn't take more pills. She called the police and chose to live. After 24 hours. So she had enough medication in the house to try a second attempt and she never did. No. And there's other ways to do it if you didn't have that medication. I'm not saying she should have. Not at all. But I am questioning, was she really trying to kill herself or did she take just enough to pass out and not have to deal with it? Because when she woke up, she did not finish the job. That's a good point, Christy. I didn't think about that, but that is a good point. I'm talking out of emotion right now, too. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time I've heard all of this. Melissa's been researching it for a while, but I'm just flabbergasted and I'm so angry that she did this. And then what foul behavior afterwards? Watching the interrogation would make you even angrier. Oh. Because her behavior during it is so confusing to me. At one point, she appears in complete emotional distress. And the next point, she's just calmly sipping coffee and talking matter-of-factly. And the performance is not a progression. It switches back and forth rapidly. She stares the interviewer down, rarely breaking eye contact, and appears completely unfazed by any of these questions that she's being asked. She oscillates between appearing like she understands everything that's happening, to the next moment looking completely forlorn and dumbfounded. So is she totally unhinged or is she just putting on an act? To me, it looks more like an act because it's during the times that she's asked directly about the children's death that she seems completely lucid and knows enough to not say anything. It's those times that she says, oh, I can't talk anymore about this. Mm. And then when they're not directly questioning her, then she's... She's more than happy to share her story of being the victim. So it's to what suits her in that moment. Absolutely. But there's other moments in the interrogation that have me questioning, is she actually sane? Because there's one point during the interview, she is asked where she thinks her children are. And she guesses with their dad. What? Yeah. But then she confirms to the officer that she's fully aware that she's just been charged for murder. And then she starts to cry. Yeah, things aren't adding up. It is a very emotionally conflicting interview to watch. Yeah, I'm questioning how much of that is she in control of? Like, is she trying to manipulate the situation so that they think, oh, she's not sane and she can use that as a defense? 
when you watch the moments where she switches to calmly sipping coffee again and saying, no, I can't answer that. I've been told not to answer that. It does seem like whatever happened previous to that is totally an act. Ooh, which just makes her that much more evil if that's true. Mm -hmm. But then again, the opposite could be true. If she really is suffering with a severe mental illness and is not lucid about what's happening, then that's just super sad. For everybody involved. Elaine Campioni was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, and her trial began in September of 2010. At trial, her defense was that she was not criminally responsible for her acts by reason of mental disorder, because she was suffering from a psychotic disorder that rendered her incapable of making rational choices or knowing that her acts were morally wrong. The defense theory was that the killings were, from her perspective, an altruistic act driven by her psychotic delusions. She believed that the only way to save her children from harm at the hands of her estranged husband and his family was to send them to heaven where they could be safe in God's hands. The Crown's theory was that the killings were an act of vengeance directed against her estranged husband and family, and carried out in the midst of a bitter custody battle in which Elaine risked losing the children because her husband was maneuvering to have the state of her mental health revealed in court. The prosecution suggested that Elaine remained in love with Leo and had longed for reconciliation, only when the hope dimmed by Leo beginning a new relationship and sending along papers to sell the matrimonial home and playing hardball on the custody did Elaine realize that it was all over and was driven to punish Leo with the only thing she had access to, the children. The Crown and the Defense both called expert witnesses to testify of Elaine's mental health. Both experts agreed that Elaine had a mental health disorder at the time of the offense. They both termed it psychosis not otherwise specified. Together with major depressive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, symptoms of anxiety, and personality disorder with borderline and dependent traits. The personality disorder explained Elaine's difficulties with impulse control. Both also agreed that Elaine was capable of appreciating the nature and the quality of her acts and that she knew they were legally wrong. But where these two sides differed was on whether she understood or had the capacity to understand that her acts were morally wrong. So through a lot of medical and legal jargon combined, the question that needed to be answered was, was Elaine incapable of understanding that her subjective belief was out of step with normal society morals? And was she making a rational choice? She had answered that in the video when she said that people would not understand her choice. That's true. The jury of six men and six women accepted that she did know that her actions would not be seen as moral by others, and they found her guilty on two counts of first-degree murder on November 15, 2010. And just to show that it's not only us who are conflicted over Leo's involvement in this case, Justice Alfred Strong, before allowing Leo's victim impact statement to be read in court, made some very harsh statements towards him. Oh. He said, quote, It is more than disconcerting to think that if Mrs. Campioni had not been so abused, so used and discarded as a person, her two daughters could still be alive. Clearly putting the blame squarely on Leo just as Elaine had said. And this was the presiding judge of the case? Uh-huh. It was only after making that statement would the judge allow Leo's victim impact statement and that of his parents to be read to the court during the sentencing. Because Leo didn't attend the proceedings, saying that he couldn't bear the emotional pain. So he sent in a statement to be read. Right. I don't know. That's... 
feels like a low blow. This is, regardless of any of that, this is a man whose children have been murdered. Mm-hmm. And you're going to take that moment when he's reading his victim, victim impact statement to deliver such a low blow. And there's no proof of the abuse. There's no police reports of being called for disturbances. There's no convictions. There's nothing to prove that he was being abusive. He wasn't even, he went a whole year without even seeing his children. They were allegations. It's true. It just seems like a badly timed thing to say. I think it speaks to how strongly the justice felt that Elaine was abused. Yeah. So maybe she was. Mm -hmm. Because we're just looking at this as a third party kind of looking in. That's right. But it doesn't negate what she did. And he is still a victim in this. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think he's a dirtbag dad. He doesn't appear to be. So during his victim impact statement, once it's finally allowed to be read, Leah wrote, quote, Serena and Sophia were my life, and they still are. I miss the times that I'd come home from work and they'd run to the door with their hands up saying, Daddy, Daddy. I'd pick them up and they'd always give me strength. He said some people may see the victory in the jury's decision, but his family still lives every day with the loss. Quote, I'll be haunted forever in ways I can't describe. He also mentions in his victim impact statement the frustration that he and his family feel against the Children's Aid Society of Simcoe County and its role in the last few months of Serena and Sophia's lives. Yeah, because they viewed Leo as the villain and allowed the children to stay with a woman who was mentally unstable. Right. But in those last months when they had become involved, they were helping her become stable. Yeah. Or at least they thought that. Oh, my goodness. And the other thing just to bring up, I guess, about her accusing, and I'm not trying to defend Leo. I am in a way, but because I don't know. But she also was accusing everybody, not just Leo. Her mom wasn't a bad mom. His parents were not in the mafia. She was making these wild allegations about everybody around her. So why is it not true about everyone except for Leo? Because of one bad altercation. Right. But she did have those bruises on her. Right. That one bad altercation. But we don't know. He said she attacked him first. Was he defending himself? Right. And even if he wasn't, even if he struck first, that was one bad choice. Not to negate that. But that one moment you're going to kill your children over years later? Yeah. If she was abused, it definitely doesn't justify her killing her children. I'm just having a hard time believing that he was. But if she was abused, then it gives us a little bit more insight. Mm-hmm. You can kind of understand why she felt that threat. Yeah. But to that point. No, there's no way you can justify what it, she did. It feels more vengeful to me. I think it does too. And it'll be interesting to see what listeners think. If they think it was vengeance or if they think she really was acting out of a loving, protective stance. Yeah, it could be somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think she was thinking clearly. I think she knew she was making an immoral, illegal, wrong choice. But to even fathom doing that... It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, if you're of sound mind, that's going to leave your brain the second it comes in. Mm -hmm. And that's why it seems like she must have been out of her mind to make this decision. Vengeance just does not seem like justification to kill your own children. But we know it happens. Right. And she's made mountains out of molehills throughout this entire time. Just even with the accusing him of affairs and accusing everybody of all these horrible things. Right. After the victim impact statements were read, the judge declared the mandatory sentence. 
Elaine was told that she was going to receive a life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years, and she began loudly sobbing at it. In the years since her conviction, Elaine, now going by her maiden name, has appealed her conviction, but that has been denied every time. In 2020, in a psychological assessment, she was deemed low risk to offend again, and it was noted that Elaine had accepted responsibility for her offending behavior, demonstrated good insight into her problem areas, and had been compliant with treatment. In the previous five years, she had been in a minimum security setting and completed the recommended correctional programs and participated in several chaplaincy-led programs. Despite some responsibility issues, she has completed a college diploma in business and is upgrading her education in order to enroll in a university-level course. Because of her assessment, she has been granted escorted temporary absences from prison to attend weekly church services, courses for anger and emotional management, and a recovery program. And in 2022, these leaves were extended again, and she continues today with her rehabilitation. Wow. Well, I hope she's getting the help that she needs. They think that she's a low risk to reoffend. Yeah, because she has no more children. That is sadly true. I just have a really hard time wrapping my head around it. It seems like an unforgivable sin. And she only got one life sentence, not two? Yeah. Even that seems unjust. Yeah. And that is the tragic case of Elaine Campioni, the dirtbag mother that became so wrapped up in her jealousies and delusions that she felt it was necessary to cut short the lives of her two sweet daughters to get back at their father. That was terrible. Good job covering it, but that was a terrible case. It's a different way to celebrate Mother's Day. (laughs) Yeah, my goodness. And if they're already giving her all these leaves... From the prison, there's a good chance when her parole comes up, she'll be granted it. Mm -hmm. It does seem very plausible that she will be granted it. Well, hopefully she can be rehabilitated and will not be a risk if she's put back on the streets. But it's just hard to fathom that you can kill two of your children and lead a regular life one day after. Because those two little girls, their lives were snuffed out for no reason by the hands of the woman who should have loved them the most. Mm -hmm. And it does make you just want to go hug your babies at home, doesn't it? Yeah, honestly. And we hope that's what you guys will do. Go hug your mom. Go hug your sister. Go hug your babies. Be kind to each other. And we do hope that all of you who will be celebrating have a wonderful Mother's Day. And we'll be back again with you next week. But until then, see ya. Bye. Looks like you're not even on. Did you turn your mic off? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it helps to turn your mic on to test. <laughs> on October 4th, October 20th, on the 4th of October. Let's just read my on notes. On October 4th, the 4th of October. Yeah. Only my notes don't say that. They say oh. something totally different. <laughs> just read your notes, girl. She even goes as far to drive. What? Read the freaking page. Yeah, she's off. Like, don't put this in here, but she's off her rocker. She does sound off her rocker right now. What do you mean right now? What do you mean just right now? (laughs) Like, Just wait, though. There's going to be things that happen that make you question it. What, there really were aliens? No, there were no aliens. (laughs) It's not aliens that are going to make you question it.
he has a new woman that he's seeing and that he started and he he has a new woman that he's he has a new woman that he's seeing he has a new woman yeah he does he has a new woman (laughs) is he seeing her he is seeing her totally (laughs) under the sheets (laughs) so he's seen a lot of her yeah (laughs) ooh la la take a break or I'm gonna cry no more crying (laughs) gotta laugh gotta laugh (laughs) okay (laughs) this is the crazy part this is the crazy part because if he sorry I know I need to like stop talking about it but (laughs) no matter how you spend to choose it exactly does that make sense no matter how you choose to spend it not spend to choose it (laughs) oh I didn't even catch it Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.